to Coral, Kelp, and Community. For this episode, I had the pleasure of talking about Arctic biodiversity and geopolitics with my colleague, Liam Stowe. I actually want to start with what got you interested in the Arctic? That's a great question. So basically this project, uh, the one that we'll discuss in a little bit, is stemming from two larger interests of mine, specifically issues with Arctic security and also an interest in how to better protect biodiversity from conflict, specifically military conflict. Mm -hmm. uh, and I became interested in kind of this larger Arctic security issue uh, because I spent part of my time as an, as an undergraduate student studying national security in Scandinavia. Uh, and while I was there, I kind of became weirdly obsessed with how the Arctic was used as a leverage piece during the Cold War uh, between the Soviet Union and the Western Bloc. Uh, namely, I was spending most of my time in Denmark, and obviously Denmark uh, at that point and still today uh, used Greenland as this autonomous territory that they basically let the U.S. use as a site for potentially nuclear bases and just use as a nuclear, I mean, excuse me, a military outpost in general. Mm -hmm. uh, additionally, as I kind of continued researching national security issues, I became more interested in this intersection of environmental policy and national security, which made me consider what would happen if a modern Arctic conflict were to occur. Uh, when I was doing this, this was a time when the national security space was looking for where the quote-unquote next Cold War would be. And there were growing, growing concerns about both Russia's attempts to open travel routes in the area and uh, China's construction of man-made islands in the South China Sea. Uh, and so this kind of topic, as well as a couple of my peers as an undergraduate, introduced me to issues like this uh, so-called icebreaker gap and what happens as the ice pack melts and as China tries to do, uh, construct what's known as the polar silk road. Yeah, and we're going to get to all of that. Um, but before we do, let's start with a little additional background. Yeah, of course. Um, so, I mean, the Arctic, of course, uh, is famous for some really amazing marine life walruses, polar bears, beluga, um, you know, like all the charismatic megafauna <laughs> you can imagine. Yes. Um, and a lot of these species are also extremely important to the indigenous people that live there. Um, but there's also, you mentioned in your paper, there's also a lot of um, microscopic life there. And we don't quite understand what role it plays in the ecosystem. And so that makes it even harder to predict what would happen when the ice melts, just but like that process alone is gonna cause a lot of um, ecological changes. But then if a conflict were to break out, um, it's even more challenging to predict anything. Um, so, I remember you had some huge numbers in your paper about the biodiversity. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Like, 
what yeah. is it, over 20,000 species or something? Yeah, currently it's projected to, the Arctic is projected to host more than 21,000 uh, known species. And obviously there are many others that we just don't know at this point, just due to the kind of logistical hassle of studying air portions of the Arctic and the fact that a lot of, especially microbiota, are found in ice pack as it uh, starts melting at this point. Uh, and as you mentioned, there are many different charismatic creatures there. Arctic hares and snowy owls are species that, that live and breed in the Arctic tundra. Uh, they're obviously beautiful creatures. Please look them up. Uh, <laughs> but they also evolve and uh, have come to rely on the Arctic to survive for many, many, many years. Yeah, and you also brought up the absolute mass amount of migratory species that go there in summer. Yes, uh, so there are quite a few of those. And to kind of touch on something that you brought up a moment ago, Tara, uh, many groups, especially indigenous groups like the Sami and Inuit people of the Arctic rely on these migratory species for hunting, for fishing. And as the Arctic becomes more industrialized, access to these migratory paths for these tribal groups becomes more complicated and hard to do. Uh, namely, uh, the Sami people have had a lot of their territory, especially in uh, Russia, bisected by energy infrastructure, which has cut them off from breeding grounds of reindeer, has cut them off from specific sanctuary sites. It's just become a, a, an incredible issue for a lot of these tribal groups, as well as it obviously has created issues for the species themselves. Uh, there are marine species uh, that rely on these seasonal changes in ice pack that have been pretty stagnant for a long time prior to climate change. Uh, and this change in ice pack affects light, it affects temperature, and this change has really become a hindrance to these keystone species like the polar bear. We've all seen the pictures of uh, polar bear in the last couple of decades, and other ones like the Arctic fox, who have really maintained a lot of the ecosystems in which they inhabit. Yeah. And on top of that, like, as the climate warms, other species that normally couldn't live in the Arctic now get to sort of not so naturally migrate up there because they their range is changing. Um, and I remember I, I saw a few years back, I saw a documentary uh, of these scientists uh, who were essentially studying the apex predator shift happening uh, around the Hudson Bay because for a long time, because there was so much ice, orca whale couldn't enter certain areas. And so it was like this safe haven for beluga and they would have their you know, they would calf there, they'd have their nurseries, and it was a great place for um, the indigenous people who hunted beluga to do that. And, you know, I mean, I know everyone's like, oh, don't kill whales. And it's like, well, you know, there's nothing else there. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and 
you know, they have a completely different relationship than most Westerners. But anyway, um, you know, I'm watching this documentary and they're like, well, now that there's less ice, you know, there's the polar bear numbers are decreasing. And so what they normally prey upon is has less predators. But on top of that, because there's less ice, the orca whale are going in and eating all the beluga. Not like not just the babies, they'll just go in and like eat an entire pod of beluga. Um, and so it's like it's creating this trophic cascade already. Because you the apex predator is what maintains the ecosystem. And if you just swap one for the other, it's going to be completely different. Um, even though you you could say a polar bear is a marine mammal, even though it lives on land, and but then you've got the orca, and it's just like it's a whole thing. So already things are changing dramatically. Yeah, um, and, and even to bring it to a much smaller scale, obviously you talking about the orca versus the belugas. This these are much these are massive megafauna that we can really contextualize we can think about and see exactly what they are in our mind mind's eye mm -hmm. to put it on even the more micro scale there are these algae that generally inhabit the arctic that krill zooplankton zooplankton feed on and those zooplankton and krill are then in turn uh eaten by fish and marine mammals like the beluga this change in temperature has caused major issues specifically for algae because uh, increased temperature increases algae blooms, which makes too much of them. And then it, it becomes hard for the krill and zooplankton to effectively feed on them and keep the uh, algae populations low enough. And this creates these huge cascading effects to the larger creatures like krill and zooplankton to even the much larger ones like the beluga in the area. So even these small changes in ecosystem have major impacts to all of the other organisms in the area. Yeah, that sounds really hard hitting for the Arctic because in that case, you know, you're having a trophic cascade, whereas like something changes on one level of the food chain so to speak and then it impacts mm -hmm. all the other levels like it cascades it like like rolling yeah. down a hill basically and so you have these two forces of like the added algae and then the apex predator shift and it's you know trophically cascading in at each other in different directions and it's like it's a, it's a warm mess up there now. <laughs> like it's just, and that's, and that doesn't include what melting ice means for human activities. Yeah. Right. Like, absolutely. You mentioned the, the art, Arctic Silk Road. Yeah. So the Arctic Silk Road was this project just to put everyone in a specific, uh, to contextualize it for everyone. Uh, China recently has been trying to establish these trade routes all across the world because obviously industrialization and more effective globalization is a huge project for them. Uh, to do so, they've established these new trade routes uh, connecting China to Central Europe, 
all the way to portions of Africa, creating this very efficient loop so that goods and services can be provided all along it. Uh, this area is called what uh, the New Silk Road, based on uh, obviously the older Silk Road in ancient times. Mm -hmm. uh, this New Silk Road, China is hoping to expand even further by something known as the Polar Silk Road, in which China will take advantage of new trade paths that will be open by ice pack melt and more effectively send ships through the Arctic Circle and cater to northern areas of Europe, potentially parts of North America, just more easily use uh, shipping routes that were previously uh, inaccessible. So part of that was, part of that plan by China was to establish themselves as what they're claiming a near Arctic state. Near Arctic state basically gives them the status that they can claim to be, to have some skin in the game as it were uh, for Arctic policy. By doing this, uh, China started making these man-made islands in the South China Sea and near the Atlantic Ocean there, trying to establish themselves, saying that they have territory near the Arctic Circle and that they need to have some uh, more than observance power with the Arctic, Arctic Council there. And so this Polar Silk Road is one piece of that plan uh, by establishing new trade routes and trying to integrate their uh, economic pathways even more by connecting the land path of the new Silk Road to this larger uh, polar Silk Road that uses waterways instead. Is that a legally legitimate method? Like, oh, look, I built an island. Now I have an exclusive economic zone over here. Like, that is that is, that is the many billion dollar question at this point. Oh, okay. <laughs> Ostensibly, no one has really done what China has in the South China Sea. These man-made islands have a lot of power, both politically, because it's become a huge sticking point for basically any other country in the area, South Korea, Japan, even uh, even countries in the quote-unquote Western bloc like the U.S. are really uh, feel some threats by these man-made mm -hmm. islands because it threatens a lot of its allies. Uh, so it's still an open question as if this near-Arctic status has any real legal significance. But China definitely feels like it does. And as you know from... Uh, some of what we've learned on our own, international laws created by two major pathways. They're either treaty law, this is exactly what we think of, uh, it is countries get together and they pass these treaties that they both agree or they all agree upon, or customary international law. And customary international law is something that's created by practice and belief. And 
this belief has to ostensibly be believed by a critical mass of other countries that are involved in the issue. And in this case, it's still an open question as to who, inv who believes that Neurarctic state is a real status and whether or not China themselves are a someone who can claim this ability just by creating their own islands in the region. It, it's still like a really sticky question and it's caused a lot of tension in the area where previously the Arctic has been mainly a place for cooperation, like the Arctic Council, the uh, security roundtable that occurs have been these places for countries to basically air their grievances and work together to create some type of uh, cohesion between the block. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so we have, so one of the human activities will be all of these countries sort of vying for shipping routes, I guess, yeah. and having control of them. Um, you, there'll also be other, I don't want to say smaller things, but certainly smaller than like a modern day conflict would yeah. include like tourism and increased fishing and hunting um, and, you know, the associated pollution and net entanglements and unfortunate encounters with wildlife, like boat strikes with whales. Um, and then, you know, of course, there's also for when we're thinking of conflict, there's the shipping and who gets to have a say in this policy, but also ironically, the opportunities uh, to mine and drill for more oil to make the planet even warmer, <laughs> which uh yeah and so with these with these two things that you discussed in your paper um you know it's without any any comprehensive treaty system for the region um it could easily lead to conflict which would be extremely damaging for every species that lives there the biodiversity which is already struggling yeah. um i mean you brought up oil spills and the noise pollution alone, I think would be really intense for those species because I mean, it's not like there's metropolitan cities nearby. No. Right? And, and yeah, such a huge difference, even the noise pollution just from extra boats and tours. Like it, that would be, I feel like such a huge shift. Um, I mean, maybe I'm just particularly sensitive to noise, but like, if you think about a place like that. No, you're, you're totally right. So ostensibly, this is something that we haven't touched on a lot as of yet, but most of these ships uh, are operating kind of on a less ice packed level that just normal ships can operate through. Most of these trade routes that are already uh, in use, go through largely open water and don't have to deal with breaking ice pack. However, there are other ships, uh, these large uh, ice breaking ships called icebreakers that basically go further north into the ice pack and use some fairly sophisticated technology 
to break the ice and move forward further into trade routes that don't exist at this point. This breaking of the ice through these ships uh, obviously creates a lot of noise pollution and that becomes a huge issue for a lot of the species up there because new noise in the water, new industrial sounds uh, create issues of entrainment. They create just issues of the ships hitting uh, animals or just destroying ecosystems by destroying the habitat of a of fish or uh, marine mammals that use the ice as a habitat to escape predators. Mm -hmm. it, it's a problem all around, frankly. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so those are all the problems, all the many problems. And I mean, even if noise alone is going to be bad, you know, an oil spill would be tragic. And yeah. any kind of conflict would be a disaster, just an absolute disaster. So tell me, Liam, how do we protect the Arctic? <laughs> like we can, we can clearly see issues coming, right? This isn't, this isn't a secret to any, anybody or any nation. Like everyone's looking at the Arctic. Everyone's kind of like trying to stake some kind of claim. What, what are some possible routes that we can to be um preventative of disaster yeah i think that again that's the next multi-billion dollar question there uh so to protect the arctic we need to do the normal policy analysis here we try to identify the problem better understand it and then work to respond to it so as we've been discussing for a little bit at this point, a problem here is biodiversity threats due to direct climate change, like melting of the ice pack, uh, introduction of invasive species to the region. And then on top of that, we have some geopolitical conflict that is both economic, new trade routes are opening, uh, new ships are going into areas they previously have not. Uh, and then there are these issues of potential military uh, intervention if tensions continue to get worse between certain countries. Uh, that's not something that we've seen yet, but it is definitely something that countries like the United States, China, and Russia are considering, given that they're outfitting a lot of their Arctic vessels with military uh, capabilities, and they are reactivating military outposts in the area that have not been used since the Cold War. Uh, so that's the identification of the problem. To better understand that problem, I think, obviously, more research has to be done into what areas are most important for biodiversity? What are the critical areas that might be most exploited by countries? And then we also have to understand exactly what legal mechanisms are at play here. So not to get too deep into some of these issues because they can fill whole volumes of work. 
there really isn't a comprehensive treaty system for the region. This stands in really stark contrast to the Antarctic Treaty System, which was developed during the Cold War when circumstances looked quite a bit like they are today. Uh, during the Cold War, prior to the ATS's, the Antarctic Treaty System's passage, uh, the Antarctic became this huge uh, issue for both the Soviet Union and the United States and these countries that were much closer to the Antarctic, like Argentina, Chile, that kind of thing. Uh, and those countries were really afraid that the Antarctic would become this military outpost for the great powers and that it would essentially be exploited until there's no remnants of the species that were initially there. And so to do, to counteract this, the Soviet Union and the United States moderated by the countries like Argentina, who really took the helm in getting the ATS passed, uh, they basically negotiated this deal where the Antarctic through the Madrigal pro or excuse me, the Madrid protocol or the, why, why Madrid. Can't the Madrid protocol. Sorry, I'm from Iowa. There is a town called Madrid spelled the same exact way or called Madrid spelled the same mm -hmm. exact way as Madrid. And uh, we'll let it slide. <laughs> yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, so the Madrid protocol essentially turned the content into a nature reserve and banned military activity, creates uh, zones of peace and this uh, this codified need for scientific study and exploration of the area. Additionally, there are very specific rules on how the area and uh, portions near the Antarctic are used for economic exploitation, which none of which are really used in the Arctic at this point. The Arctic, for the most part, is somewhat of a no man, or no man land where a lot of it is up for grabs in that it is beyond the jurisdiction of nations at this point. Uh, there's a little bit of a change in that, which I'm sure we'll discuss in a little bit with the High Seas uh, Treaty, which has kind of changed a lot of what the Arctic could be, though we haven't seen a lot of what the High Seas will be impl implemented at this point. Yeah, interesting. So I did notice from what I read in your paper, it sounded like, you know, modeling something after the An Antarctic Treaty would be great, but you also proposed strict liability for damaging the environment. And I'm wondering why you think the Arctic needs that and the Antarctic does not, like you said, you were saying that would be an improvement. Uh, yeah, so the strict liability bit uh, has to deal with actually the Rome statute of the International Criminal Court. So uh, for those of you who don't know, the Rome Statute is ostensibly this treaty that created the International Criminal Court and criminalizes a number of deeds that 
could be done in setting up uh, ICC jurisdiction for those crimes. Uh, there isn't a lot in the Rome Statute dealing with environmental destruction. However, there is some uh, criminalization of intentional destruction of property, which has been read to include, or is at least academically being read to include, destruction of the environment. However, the issue that a number of people see with that uh, provision of the Rome Statute is that it creates a specific mens rea of intentionality. You have to intentionally destroy the environment or you have to intentionally destroy houses of people, their property. Uh, that I think many people would argue does not go far enough because intentionality is notoriously difficult, especially in, in international courts. Uh, so I would propose something closer to strict liability for especially egregious destructions of environments that go beyond uh, proportionality requirements of war. Uh, this would allow something, for example, if something were to occur in the Arctic that one country destroys the oil platform during a missile strike of another country and creates an oil spill, that country that uh, used the missile on the oil platform could be held uh, to that strict liability standard, even if they claim that they were their intention was to attack a different target that was nearby. Then it creates this larger liability for countries and essentially disincentivizes people to uh, engage in military attacks in the Arctic, or more broadly in any area that uh, the environment could be egregiously harmed. Yeah, I mean, that definitely sounds like an improvement to me. <laughs> um, yeah, and you mentioned uh, briefly a moment ago about the High Seas Treaty, and that is a very recent development. It took like, God, I don't know, 15 freaking years. Yeah, for that like almost happen. two decades. <laughs> I know, right? Like, I mean, I know I discussed before on this show that like change happens and sometimes it's really slowly. Um, <laughs> I actually was like a little bit annoyed with the High Seas Treaty at first because I was like, look, if y'all actually read the law of the sea, which we came up with in the 80s, like all the articles of marine protection and preservation, they basically turn the entire ocean into a marine protected area. But as we know, or international law only works if everybody does it or if like, you know, a critical mass do it. And literally everyone is ignoring those. Those articles, like, they might as well not even be in there. Um, like, it, it even makes requirements of what countries can do within their own exclusive economic zone. It's like, hey, you can't overfish. And everyone's like, well, we do. Yeah. <laughs> like, so anyway, um, so that was that was my 
initial feelings <laughs> about <laughs> about the high seas treaty taking too long and you know i i and totally you get where you're coming you from stand on the law of the sea you know it was yeah. from the 80s so there's new tech there's you know the option of deep sea mining and so like yeah we probably <laughs> needed an update but also like we could just follow the law of the sea um, well, yeah. but anyway how do you think <laughs> that either of those documents um could protect the arctic yeah, the, you're you're totally touching on some of the real issues here, as I'm sure you've discussed on this podcast before. The Law of the Sea is an incredibly expansive treaty, but some countries have not ratified it. Mm -hmm. Nudge, nudge, the United States, uh, <laughs> and this creates a lot of issues just on whether or not some of the provisions of it are customary international law, who should be the ones that are saying exactly what the law of the sea, not specifically that treaty, but the more broad uh, law of the sea actually is. So my hope is that the high seas treaty will be better applied to specifically the Arctic because Previously, prior to the High Seas Treaty being passed, uh, the High Seas, this area past the economic zones of certain states, was kind of the Wild West. Uh, and this new High Seas Treaty applies to areas past exclusive economic zones, which includes the Central Arctic Ocean, which is obviously very far north, Hello Santa. <laughs> and is a massive area that was previously untouched, but is becoming much, much more accessible as technology becomes better. Like Russia's icebreakers are becoming much close, much more able to navigate these previously tough terrains to access. And so some, having something like the High Seas Treaty, which caters specifically to these areas that are further out of reach could be greatly beneficial to the region. Uh, so this high seas treaty uh, is meant to basically give a legal framework to regulating areas beyond national jurisdiction, which is much of the Arctic. Uh, and those that aren't regulated by the high seas treaty do fall under the jurisdiction of the uh, law of the sea, which created the exclusive economic zones, which are uh, areas along basically the shoreline uh, for a certain number of miles uh, outside of a country. Yes, thank yeah. you. <laughs> outside of a uh, country's territory, a uh, country's land territory, excuse me. So yeah. I think that a high seas treaty would be extremely applicable to the Arctic because I can especially see the importance of high seas marine protected areas, which as you noted, were a thing previously, but are specifically codified in the high seas treaty. And I believe that they would be greatly applicable to the Arctic. MPAs could be a wonderful way to affect portions of the Arctic that are especially important to the larger ecosystem or house endangered or threatened species that uh, the global community uh, might want to keep a better eye on and protect their breeding grounds 
protect uh, sanctuaries for just to make it a little bit easier for us to protect uh, keystone and endangered species there. Yeah, I mean, it, it's definitely a current issue. Mm -hmm. And it seems like unless we're the ones in the hot seats with the policy making and decision making power, we're going to have to just see how it plays out and cross our fingers that we get some great treaty. I love your idea of, you know, an Arctic treaty system with strict liability. I think that's great. There probably is overlap with the law of the sea and the high seas treaty. Um, but we'll, we, we will all see. Maybe we'll be doing an update episode in a couple of years. I would like to see it happen in a couple of years instead of 15. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> just travels or it just moves so slowly, as you know. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, but so to close and uh, to close, I'm going to ask you what I try to remember to ask all guests. Uh, what do you think is the biggest issue the oceans are facing? Maybe slow treaties. <laughs> yeah. Maybe everything. Uh, <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> I don't know. That's an excellent question, though, Tara. I, I think that just the general complications of ice melt prove so many, introduce so many problems to not only the Arctic, but to an to every island community that uh, is slowly losing their shoreline. And this creates so many different problems like I, climate change. I know it's kind of the cop-out answer, but climate change just <laughs> presents so many issues to the oceans. Yeah, I, I don't think it's the cop-out <laughs> answer, if that makes you feel any better. I mean, it is. It is the threat, really, because you can trace everything back to it. Yeah, and, and I, I think one of the takeaways from what the paper you saw and what we've been discussing a little bit today is that climate change not only brings up issues that we think of directly like sea rise, uh, like destruction of certain communities, but it also allows new issues of geopolitics, new issues of migration of species. It just pre presents these problems that might not have ever occurred had not climate change introduced them to certain regions. It's just such a catch-all problem. It is. It's so extremely complex. I am. Um, it is a wicked problem, right? Which is, a, I think, is one of the best terms ever. Uh, I can't remember who coined it. I forget. But back in the seventies, they were yeah. like, "We're going to call these wicked problems," and I'm like, "Oh, that's so East Coast of you." Um, of course, their wicked means cool, and in this case, it means like it's a really complex problem with many different sources, and. But climate change, like, it's not just a problem with many sources. It's also a problem that, like, snowballs into a million other problems. Um, and, yeah, and I, 
in, in grad school, I got a little cheeky and I was like, well, I'm going to focus on wicked solutions <laughs> and like find like one act, one simple act from one source that like has a ripple effect and does all of solves all so many cross cutting issues. And, but I mean, that's, that's also, I think a big challenge of our time is recognizing that so many of our problems are cross cutting. Like there's no way to silo justice right like you can't you can't just protect the biodiversity without considering who lives there and who depends on it and what their needs are and you know like you can't just you can't just do one thing right everything is connected and so i think that's why climate change um i'm sure you will not be the only guest to ever answer climate change when i ask that question <laughs> Yeah, maybe it's just because the Arctic is kind of on the forefront of what we we're talking about today, but of course. Yeah. Well, on that happy note, <laughs> I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. And everybody who's listening, uh, go do the self care that you do when climate change is on the brain. <laughs> And yeah, maybe I'll be giving you all an update on Arctic geopolitics one day and how we're saving the biodiversity, I hope. It was my pleasure, Tara. Thank you for hosting me. Absolutely. Next time you write a cool paper, we'll do it again. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks for joining us today, listeners. You can show your support for this podcast by subscribing so you never miss an episode or head on over to the reeflifefoundation.org and make a donation. Your donation will not only support this podcast, but also coral and kelp restoration around the world. And if you have an ocean story that you would like featured, click on the podcast tab and contact me. I look forward to hearing from you. Catch you next time.